Welcome to the latest episode of the Brush Builders Union. I'm your host and general president of the Brush Builders Union, Simon Berman. This month, I am joined by the one and only Andy Chambers. Andy, thank you so much for speaking with me this month. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, it's a great pleasure to talk to you today. I'm a great supporter of unionists everywhere. Good to know. You, you've developed almost all of the games that I grew up playing in the 90s. Um, I'm still, I continue to play them to this day. Uh, I think there are very few people in the wargaming community, especially in Warhammer, who have had such a long-reaching influence as you have. And I, I can't wait to talk to you about all the stuff you've done, what you're doing. Um, and thanks again. Thanks, thanks for taking the time. But uh, I thought maybe we'd start a little bit with like you know. So you 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 started in wargaming as a professional. How how did you how did you make that jump in the nineties? Um, my my first start in the nineties was um, I didn't have a job, but I had worked previously at Games Workshop Mail Order. Uh, I'd done like seasonal work there for a couple of Christmases. Um, so I had a friend who had worked there who'd gone to work in the studio. So the the real answer starts with nepotism. Good, yeah. I knew somebody. <laughs> um, but I got into playing Adeptus Titanicus in the intervening time, like really into it, because um, it was the first time I'd run across that kind of like game in a box experience where it's got models and it's got templates and it's got rulers and it's got dice and rules and everything all right there. Polystyrene buildings too. And... Because of that, I'd started reading White Dwarf and paying attention to like the other units they were bringing out. And they brought out models for um, what we know now as knights. Mm -hmm. uh, they were just called one-man titans then. That was what was on the blister pack. But they hadn't appeared in White Dwarf, so I didn't have any rules for them. So I wrote an article of rules for them, because I knew the system pretty well at the time. Sure. And I kind of mimicked uh, a White Dwarf article. In that I wrote little bits of colour text and stuff and did like little army list entries for them and all this sort of stuff. No big deal in itself, um, although it has to be taken in the context of this is like 1989. So um, desktop publishing doesn't exist. Right. And I had to borrow my friend's like word processor because that's what we had at the time to actually like type up the article. Anyway, I, I submitted that and they said, at White Dwarf, uh, and they said, oh, that's all right, you know, come in for a couple of weeks and finish off your article, if you're up for that. And I was like, oh, yes. And they got in there thinking, well, you know, this is my in. You know, I, I can make myself sensual and write stuff about Adeptus Titanicus, because I'd also heard from my friend that um, Jervis Johnson, who's the designer of Adeptus Titanicus and had done all the White Dwarf stuff previously, uh, had taken, like, six months of sabbatical, something like that, so he wasn't going to be around for a while. I was like, well, hey... I mean, huh. first day there, uh, Jervis is actually already back. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so here's my two weeks then and then out the door. But um, it turned into not just that article, but, oh, can you do another article on uh, Space Marines? That was. Um, and the very beginnings of what we'd later use for the, the sort of like the epic scale uh, companies and detachment system. Um, so I did that, and then another thing, and then another thing, and it turned into like a year's worth of employment, and that was it, really. That was March 1990. I started in at the studio, yeah, uh, and I worked there until uh, March 2004, so 14 years in total. That's a great run. Um, yeah, you're you're you were so prolific in that time. I, I wouldn't even begin to talk about everything you did, but I, maybe we talk about a couple of the things, but particularly things that were interested me because Warhammer 40,000 Second Edition was basically my entry into wargaming. Um, and, 
that that box that box set was so incredible at the time. I, I was wondering, you know, what, what was your involvement in in the launch of that edition? Um, I was really heavily involved uh, with second edition, kind of like. I'm not going to say I did all of it because I didn't. Sure. But, um, I did a lot of the legwork on the rules in particular and the war gear book uh, and actually putting the stats in on um, the Codex Imperialis, wasn't yeah. it? That edition. And the armies of the Imperium Army list that went with it uh, as well, like the Black Codex, as people started to call it later. Um. No, that was third edition. I'm getting my editions mixed up. I did three <laughs> editions of 40k, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it, it all blurs <laughs> which, a little. I'm sure. That was the first. Um, yeah, because I'd come off of uh, doing stuff like uh, Warhammer Battle Magic. I uh, did that supplement and quite a lot of stuff for Epic at that point. Uh, Rick actually entrusted me with writing up the the core rules, which is basically a case of taking. The mass of white dwarf articles and like little bits of army lists and extra rules and stuff that had been published through white dwarf and then uh, in some cases put together in like compendiums and things like that and trying to write a coherent rule set out of it uh, was the objective which we mostly succeeded in it was it was zany to say the least sure because it was also coming from the rogue you know rogue trader set of core rules yeah actually if, if i could maybe just so it's called Warhammer Second Edition, but I, I always felt like in a lot of ways it was kind of a first edition of Warhammer as its own war game because Rogue Trader feels like a very different experience. But I, I only found it later on, but it feels like there was a big jump there. I'm curious what you did to Yeah, but it, it, it was a continuation because after Rogue Trader had come out, like the core rule book, like I say, a lot of supplemental material had come out for it. And part of the reason that Second Edition was done was because it had got to the point where you needed your Rogue Trader rule book and like three or four other. Uh, White Dwarf compendiums, so there was a great mass of books you had to take around with your sure. games. And it was like, let's, you know, pull it all together into a single game. So yeah. and that was the, the genesis for it being second edition Warhammer 40,000. It was very much development from what Rogue Trader um, had got to in the about three years at that point, three or four mm-hmm. years since it had come out. So, uh, which is why we, we very much thought of it as being a second edition. And it was following on the heels of starting to do the same thing uh, with Warhammer Battle mm-hmm. as well. Of like, And it's the same principle of game in a box um, that I mentioned for Adeptus Titanicus, where you have your rules and you have a decent amount of models enough to play with, certainly. Uh, and, you know, dice and some scenarios to play. So everything is right there in a, in a single bundle. And yeah, it went fantastically well on launch. Uh, really, really well. Uh, and kind of saw a big spurt of growth for the company in general, opening more stores and things like that. Oh yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it, that that was certainly the the first you know big box wargaming experience I ever had. Um, you know, I guess I was 14 when that came out, and I, you know I started playing probably later that year, so it, it had been out for a moment. But uh, the uh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, you you're in on the ground floor then, basically. If that, yeah, essentially. Right. I mean, I didn't like realize it at the time, but. Um, yeah, um, so it was a tremendous launch. Is one of those things. I mean, they, they printed forty thousand copies of it <laughs> originally because that seemed like a funny number. That was a fairly big number, sure, uh, for getting printed at the time. And you know, it was sold out within a week or a month, and they had to reprint it. And uh, we knew we were on something big, and plastics technology was coming on. So um, while the the miniatures in it are kind of workmanlike, the kind of classics, shall we say, in, by today's standards, but. Uh, they did the job, and they weren't bad. They had a lot of character. Those 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 orcs in particular, and the Gretchen. I mean, you know, you got one of them, but 
twenty yeah. times or whatever, but like they, they they had they had personality. Yeah, they did. They did, and the space marines were nice, really serviceable. Yeah, you know, space marines. So, um, yeah, it, it was a it was a very nice, very nice addition. A lot of nice card as well because card was cheap back then. So it's like, oh, I fill it up with lots of extra card. That'll add to the weight, which we indulged in with war gear cards and psychic cards and all the rest of it. No, psychic cards came later. Sorry. Sure, um, that was Dark Millennium, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Which we did fairly hard on the heels of it. Um, to sort of expand out on the psychic system, do more with librarians and other psychers. So something um, I'm, I'm curious. Oh, sorry. No, no. I was, I was going to just trail off into chaos and stuff. Sure. <laughs> um, so I was wondering, you know, when it came to to making that 40k, that first 40k box set, what mm-hmm. were sort of the what was like the guiding? What, what was the experience you wanted the players to have from the 40 Warhammer 40,000 universe? You're drawing upon Rogue Trader. For somebody who is a new player, what, how, what, what did you want them to feel and think about Warhammer 40k from the games they played from that box set? Um, yeah, well, first and foremost, we wanted to show that it was a small battle game. Um, you know, with squads of men, squads mm-hmm. of troops, I should say, because none of them were men um, yeah. <laughs> on either side. Uh, and that there was sort of like, a, there was a gradient of sort of like numbers versus toughness. Because it, it had built, it had grown in the telling since Rogue Trader already about space yeah. marines being, you know, the, the emperor's elite, the emperor's finest, and all this sort of stuff. So we took that opportunity to sort of like tilt the odds really hard. So there's a great mass of Gretchen and a great mass of orcs fighting against a handful of space marines. But ironically, at, at that scale and that sort of smaller, um, a microcosm of game almost, uh, it worked really well. And the Space Marines were quite heroic and, you know, tough to take down for the Orcs, uh, especially for the Gretchen as well, and could handle, you know, five Space Marines could handle 20 Gretchen with a following wind anyway. So it was showing something about that um, against the odds kind of nature of the Warhammer 40,000 universe. It wasn't necessarily an even-looking battle on both sides. Mm -hmm. There was um, extremities to it. Um, What else? And I've always kind of hated this term because it sounds really ponzi when you say it. But to provide a window onto the Warhammer 40,000 universe, yeah? Sure. A look inside as to, you know, what's going on in here. So it's not a single world or a single battle that you're portraying, but a whole universe of possible conflicts and different enemies and different groups trying to defend the Imperium and so on. It sort of like sparked that idea, which was there in Rogue Trader, uh, but not quite so clear cut. Yeah, but again, in the development uh, through White Dwarf, you know, you start to get a sense of what's popular and what people respond to the most, mm-hmm. and that idea of the embattled Imperium uh, with its back backwards technology and its sea of foes was something that we wanted to communicate really strongly, which John Blanche did as well with his art. Yeah, I'm sure. Cover of it, you know, these besieged Space Marines, and that that idea of like a small skirmish game. Um, to sort of like learn the larger rules was there as well in Rogue Trader um, with the battles on Rin's world and they had a, a scenario oh yeah there. so taking that idea and sort of saying alright if we're going to do this again modernise it how would we do that with some plastic figures blah, 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 blah. same sort of principles applied so we still owed a lot to Rogue Trader, but it was kind of picking and choosing what came out of there to sort of move it slightly away from the kind of role-playing game and more towards a battle game. 
because again the, the development through white dwarf had all been kind of focused in that direction of like what people wanted what they asked for was scenarios and army lists and ways to play the game so you you get a sort of similar art with things like uh D, dungeons and dragons books where you can supply the core rules but that's actually just the beginning and and while you can kind of work from there not everyone wants to or has time or investment to do that so they always sort of welcome a bit more direction so again second edition there was a lot of thrust towards how you organize scenarios by having uh, objectives uh, and actually having sort of like scenario cards which can you, you can randomize for both sides so that you know ah, today we're trying to do x and we're trying to do y and different scenario layouts and things like that uh, which we followed through a lot with third edition as well because it's not just about having the core rules of like what dice you roll how far you move but it's that wider context of like how that starts to make a game because it, it's not just the core mechanics it's also the other stuff that supports it so uh, i guess you could say that yeah that's uh that makes a lot of sense to me so i'm curious you know was you had worked on the edition of um Warhammer Fantasy Battles as well, correct? Mm-hmm. But uh, w- w- 40, it, seems like, it seems like 40k Second Edition was a much bigger project. I'm curious, were there any design principles that you learned or grappled with um, on such a, such a huge transitional game? Um, yeah, some some stuff learned along the way. I mean, the main thing I did for Warhammer Fantasy Battle before doing Second Edition was uh, I wrote two army books, uh, which was High Elves, believe it or not, and Skaven, which you probably would believe. <laughs> because I got quite well known for that yeah. one. <laughs> um, uh, but I also did Warhammer Battle Magic as well, which was kind of halved, and Nigel Stillman had done a lot of the groundwork for it, uh, and a lot more of it came from um, the role-playing game, the Warhammer role-playing game, about the, the different colours of magic and all that sort of stuff. But again, it, it, it all needed corralling and like turning into a system a bit more. Um, so I'd already had sort of my feet wet on doing a a pretty big transitional piece of like, you know, look at all these things, grab it all together, make it work together in a coherent-ish sort of fashion, um, which definitely stood me in good stead when it came to working on the second edition of Warhammer 40,000, because it was a very similar process of like, there has been work done for this already. It's a case of like, what actually fits together, what doesn't fit, and you should discard it, you know, what you should keep and maybe change a little bit so it fits with the rest better. La la la. Yeah. Uh, and I'd also done a lot of work with um, Space Marine supplements as well by that point. Space Marine being sort of the precursor to Epic, correct? Yes, yes, because it, it went Adeptus Titanicus first time round, then it's Space Marine, then Space Marine second edition, which was, yeah, like 1300 scale, six millimeter tall Marines. Mm hmm. Uh, in plastic, uh, and working with the old Adeptus Titanus Plastic Titans and some of the metal stuff that was there as well. Some of my very earliest work actually in White Dwarf that actually got published first, like that Knights article yeah. didn't come out until much later, was doing stats for Baneblade variants. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. You know, Storm Swords and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so all, all that carried through, all that metal range carried through into doing Space Marine and Second Edition Space Marine. And I did uh, stuff for Chaos Space Marines and Squats and Eldar and Tyranids, um, which again was all taking a core system because Rick had done the core system for Space Marine. 
and he did Armies of the Imperium, which kind of covers Space Marines and Imperial Guard. But then doing more supplements in a fl similar flavour, but for obviously very different races from there on out. So I suppose that made you pretty much a natural to take over on, or be one of the leads on Titan Legions when that came out. Yeah, that that again was more more a, a tidying up the house yeah. uh, experience from the sort of se second edition Space Marine rules and all the stuff that had come out from that, and trying to make it a bit more Adeptus Titanicus-y, really. I always kind of wanted to draw it more back towards what pulled me in in the first place, which had been the Titans, because over the course of doing Space Marine, it, it always kind of like pulled itself more and more back towards like being a like a World War Two one three hundred scale game. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I kind of miss those big walking engines and gargants and stuff like that. Yeah. So I was really happy uh, to see Adeptus Titanicus come back round again uh, with the newer edition that they've done in the last few years. Yeah, I really, I, I, I love the current edition. It, it might be my favorite thing they're publishing right now. Yeah, it looks terrific. It yeah, really a, does. And lovely lot of big Titan models and everything. So it's like, oh, <laughs> it's yeah. Nice to see that again. <laughs> um, one thing I did want to talk about was, was Necromunda because Necromunda is probably my all time favorite miniatures game. I, I, I were buying the box set the day it came out in 1995 at the store. Like me and some buddies went to the shop just to get it and demo it and all of that. And I've, I don't think there's any, you know, I, I've worked at Wargaming Company. I worked at Privateer Press for eight years and I still think I've probably played more Necromunda than any game that we published uh, at this point. Oh. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, you know, what what was how did how did Necromunda happen? You know, was at the, at the beginning before it was published, was it somebody's baby or? Um, it had a long history in its own way because there'd been an effort to do a kind of fairly crunchy skirmish game for Warhammer Forty Thousand, set in the Warhammer Forty Thousand universe, called Confrontation, mm -hmm. um, which you can find lurking about in White Dwarf, like before I was there, like a. 88, 89, around there, they published some stuff for it. One of the first conventions that I did with Games Workshop, me and Jervis took uh, a load of miniatures down and basically ran demo games of confrontation. And it owed a lot to, it was a very kind of like uh, numbers heavy, crunchy sort of a game. Uh, not tremendously playable, truth be told. Uh, sure. It was a very kind of like, late 70s early 80s bit of games design in its own way so it but stuff had been done for it and you know logos have been done and some artwork had been done and some concept sketches have been done and it kind of always sat there in the drawers uh, basically the studio until lo and behold Warhammer 40,000 comes out it's wildly successful uh -huh. you know we do Dark Millennium and so forth and at that time Games Workshop was trying to put out two box games a year was the plan. One in April uh, and one for Christmas. So one for Easter, one for Christmas. How quaint by today's standards. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no messing around. So we, we we were cranking quite hard, as you might imagine, because yeah. as we forget, we're also doing a monthly magazine in amongst this as well. Um, so we're cranking really hard doing that, supplements, codexes, and two games a year. So naturally enough, you know, <clears throat> dust off the confrontation ideas and just take another look at that and think about what to do with it. And from that, and from the minds of Rick and Jervis and myself and Nigel, kind of spawned this idea of like, well, we'll do, you know, Necromunda. More like the gang game that you came to experience now because we had second edition Warhammer 40,000 at that point, which is a perfectly skirmish, serviceable skirmish game. 
Um, you just put in, you know, rules on pinning and people getting flesh wounds and stuff like that, and you're away to the races. And it covered, you know, all the weaponry. So actually, there was a rule system already in place. Biggest chunk of it already done. Broke yeah. Up. From there, um, Jervis had been working on um, new editions of Blood Bowl uh, over the preceding years, and one of those two games a year we did was Blood Bowl. And in the course of that, he'd put a lot of time and effort into running leagues, Blood Bowl leagues, at the studio that people would like play at lunch or you know just after work. And they've been really popular, really active, and that grew a sort of like knowledge base about how to run a campaign with a bunch of different people just playing occasional games. So we stole mercilessly uh, from that to huh. do the basis of the Necromunda campaign. Sure. So we bolted together Warhammer 40,000 second edition rules, Blood Bowl campaign, and ran, um, again, a Studio League for about a year, I think we actually had it running a little bit more than that overall. And it went really, really well. People were really into it. Lots of people playing Blood Bowl. And I putting up threatening letters on the on the notice board. And we'll of get course. used for that. And all yeah. that sort of stuff. <laughs> it was fantastic. And that really fed into the campaign system, which is the real strength of Necromunda. Yeah. Was its campaign system. It had a nice, robust campaign system that was fun to play, kind of rewarded you for playing. And even if you were a bit you know, behind your opponents, then, you know, you got more reward for, for taking them on because you got more experience points and no, no, no. So you could catch up, which are all the things we'd learned over the course of doing these couple of different leagues, you know, one for Blood Bowl, one for Necromunda over the years, fed back into the game. And yeah, it just worked. It really worked. And it was um, a setting everyone could wrap their heads around. You know, the art fit together with it well. The guys painting the miniatures has got a good idea of what's going on. Um, the guys making the train for it made some marvellous train for it as well. So, uh, yeah, it was one of those things that had a really nice synergy about it. So when it hit the stores, I, th I think people really um, took to that, that had this feel of, like, being nicely done. Everything fit together well. And it was a, a nice small commitment to get into. It wasn't like, buy an army to play this game. Sure. Like, you know, buy this box of guys and you can play this game. Or, you know, buy this box start a set and you and your mate can play this game and you can play campaigns and all sorts yeah i mean for, for me the, the really exciting thing about that that original necromunda box set um wasn't even the figures which were quite cool um mm. and the game itself but it was the terrain it was the fact that it gave you this 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 whole board to battle over i mean in hindsight you know the terrain was actually like there's only a few pieces in it but it felt like there was so much uh, it was very clever i felt uh that was rick and that was rick put that together he basically came up with the idea for the for doing a plastic part that would help clip together pieces yeah. of card. The bulkheads. The bulkheads, indeed. Um, and we'd done enough plastics at that point that, uh, you know, the difference between doing miniatures and doing something flat like that was quite apparent that it'd be a lot cheaper to do those. And that gave rise to being able to build this sort of like 3D uh, landscape with card pieces and using the bulkheads in increasingly clever ways. And we actually fed it back into Warhammer 40,000 in the end as well. Mm -hmm. And it, you're right, because, again, just going into a store or something like that, there's a world of difference between, like, oh, here's a flat table with some guys running around on it. Oh, maybe there's some crates and barrels they're hiding behind. And, like, you know, here's this 3D tower that they're running about and some gantries nearby and things like that. And the credit where credit's due as well. Nigel Stillman has uh, got a lot of 
responsibility for starting off that idea because he'd made some really just crazy like integral um, terrain boards for playing confrontation on you know using bits of polystyrene packing and stuff sure. like that and just jamming it all together but they had that three dimensionality to them and we'd kind of learned from that, that that made it a lot more interesting you know as soon as you got like a bit of height difference and some ledges to fall off it, it adds a lot of extra drama to the game in itself so it makes it so cinematic yeah absolutely and it, being able to sort of like do that in the starter set by um, supplying some parts for it was again one of those things that really cinched it. I think yes, yes. Yeah, no. The, the verticality of Necromon is, I think, in, in every edition sense, is always what made that game sing. Um, mm. You know that 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 visual of you know the, the the guy running down the the platform, the walkway, you know, gunning down his enemies while a sniper takes aim from you, an even higher platform. I, I can't think of too many miniatures games at that point. Maybe any miniatures game at that point that had that feel to it. It, it was so immersive and cool. Mm. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It was, it was a fascinating sort of like world as well. It gave an opportunity to sort of like drill down into one of the worlds of the Imperium and go like check it out. Yeah, it was it was the first time, and really, really one of the, even ever since one of the only times you really get to take a really deep look at, at what life is like in the Imperium, right? Mm. Um, and I'm I'm curious what went into that. Were you involved in that that sort of world building at all? Um, to a certain extent, yes, yeah, because. Uh, Rick came up with the, the the kind of core background texts for Necromunda, uh, but I had to flesh it out largely through the campaign materials and stuff like that. So it was taking the the idea that you know that you had this very stratified hive with nobles up the top, kind of everybody else in between, um, but then below that, the underhive where things break down and it's chaos down there in effect. Not large sea chaos, small sea chaos. Right. And anarchy. It's anarchy down yeah. there. That's a better word for it. Um, but at the same time, it's kind of got elements of the Old West to it. You know, you've got holsteaders and stuff like that. People trying to, like, strike out on their own and make something for themselves rather than just work their, you know, 16-hour days up above. Mm-hmm. Uh, and trying to balance off those things. And go, oh, how would that work? Um, and it, it, it does create a fascinating little world in itself uh, than to throw in a load of bloodthirsty gangs on top as well Right. in oh. many ways we were very inspired by um, 2000 AD comics of course yeah um, there's a lot of elements of kind of Strontium Dog uh, and Judge Dredd both go into Necromunda uh, sort of <laughs> Judge Dredd for the upper levels and Strontium Dog as you get down into the lower levels all the mutants and stuff like that gangs. sure could you explain me like two sentences about Strontium Dogs? I think it's less familiar with the American audience. All right. Uh, well, 2000 AD is probably the best place to start. Sure. Which is a weekly comic which exists to this day with multiple uh, science fiction and sometimes fantasy strip comic strips in it. Uh, the most long-running and well-known is Judge Dredd, uh, which has actually had a couple of movies. Yeah, know, everybody knows Judge Dredd recently, sure. and old Sylvester Stallone further back. Um. One of the less, it's well known if you know 2000, but it's kind of less well known if you don't, is Strontium Dog, which was a setting which basically had um, mutants created in the course of an atomic war uh, who were kind of outsiders, left as outsiders to the rest of society, very oppressed, repressed, suppressed, to the extent where the only job that they can hold legally is bounty hunting. Uh, they have to leave Earth 
go and go bounty hunting among the stars. So it's kind of got a bit of, I'm saying this because we were just watching an episode, a bit like The Witcher in some ways. Oh, yeah. That these are kind of expendable guys who will do the dirty work nobody else wants to of like running down aliens and criminals and other mutants as well, for that matter, for for money. Um, And Strong Team Dog, the, the main character you follow in it is a guy called Johnny Alpha and his partner, Wolf, who's actually a human. Um, and there's a lot of stuff in there about prejudice. Uh, you know, the, the mutants are, are used as a, a fairly you know heavy-handed metaphor at times. Sure. But again, for a creation of when it was, it's, it's quite an important work yeah. uh, in some ways. And it also had a, a kind of a fascinating universe in itself. It had, you know... Dimension hopping was not particularly unusual under certain circumstances, but it was really right. wild and uncontrollable. So you had like one fairly lengthy set of strips which had Johnny Alpha in hell. Where <laughs> he got dragged into hell because it was just another alternate dimension. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he had to fight his way back out of hell. That's, that's very 40k <laughs> in and of itself too, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely yeah. fearless. <laughs> absolutely fearless. So... Um, that kind of fed into it as well. The, the sure. whole idea is that we get a ghettos and mutants uh, and people at the bottom and bounty hunters as well, sci-fi bounty hunters. Yeah, bounty hunters have always been a sort of iconic part of Necromunda, haven't they? Mm. But again, they both draw again from the, the sort of the old West. Yeah. Or at least spaghetti Western version of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Cool. So I, I, there's so much I want to talk about. You know, I'd love to talk about Gorka Morka and everything else, but I, I feel like we need to talk a little bit about... Uh, third edition of 40k, because that, that must have been a big jump for you too as a designer. Uh, yes, it was. Yes, it was, because, you know, at that point we'd been working hammer and tongs on second edition 40k, in effect, doing codexes for it for several years. And um, Rick kind of unveiled the new plan for third edition, which was to really simplify the game quite a lot. Uh, my initial response, I was horrified. I was horrified by the yeah. plan to sort of like do away with locational damage on vehicles and things like that. Because like, <laughs> oh. I'd been basically trained and, and working on skirmish games quite heavily yeah. uh, at that point. I was just coming straight off doing Gorka Morka in point of fact. So it was an adjustment, but it was one of those things that you could see the necessity of it mm-hmm. because second edition had grown very popular. Armies just grew and grew. And a game system that had kind of been designed and was great with a squad of 10 Space Marines on one side and 20 Gretchen on the other wasn't necessarily so good when you had 50 Space Marines or more, uh, including a big variety of you know characters and yeah. elite troops and maybe a vehicle or two and all the rest of it. So it was starting to grow and, and the, the system was really creaking under the strain. And like I say... There were there were some zany things in second edition as well, just balance wise, sort of uh, self self balancing to a certain extent. I'm thinking of vortex grenade. I was I was about to ask you the <laughs> vortex grenade. <laughs> I don't yeah, think yeah, it caused more strength. The virus virus grenade. Yeah, but um, yeah, the vortex grenade was ever with us. Um, but I, I say a great natural balancer in yeah. its own way. <laughs> But yeah, uh, it did increasingly turn into increasingly complex vortex delivery systems being the way to play. So, you know, c- clearly it kind of, you know, needed some heavy revision. It, this was not unfamiliar to, to me by this time that, you know, this happens to games after a while. You produce more and more stuff, yeah. and eventually you need to do a new edition. 
So it was more radical than I'd expected, but I actually grew a taste for it quite quickly. Uh, one of the things I liked most about doing it was the chance to kind of zero all of the army lists again. Because obviously we're doing codexes of varying power, lots sure. of power creep going on and so forth. So a chance to put everybody back to you know, day zero as regards to what their strengths were, what their power was, um, and to radically alter orcs into being close combat monsters was uh, was good stuff. It was, uh, it was good to clear the decks a little bit and, and play a new game. What we didn't do and should have done was change the turn system. Um, what do you wish you had done? Um, probably alternate squad activation, something like that. So what's very common in a lot of games today? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's not like you couldn't see it coming. Um, but we had our way of doing things, unfortunately. Sure. And... Uh, at the time, I, I kind of still, I still appreciated like the opportunity to just take your turn and then sit back and let the opponent take theirs. Um, let you have a more coherent plan is what I told myself. And so sure. But over time, over time, yeah, I've, I've kind of, I'm not, in, I'm not down to um, being totally in love with alternate activation systems yet. I think they need a little bit of variation. Bolt action, which is uh, something Rick and Alessio Calvatore did for Warlord Games, mm -hmm. uses a nice activation system. I like that. Dice in a bag. Colored yeah. dice in a bag. Yeah, I, I, I've encountered that mostly through um, Test of Honor, which I think draws from mm -hmm. the same sort of core idea, but I, I find it a really compelling way to play a game. Yeah. Yeah. So there, there's some there's some good options out there, and I'm, if I had my time again, I wish we would explored them more. But you know, there was a lot to do already, it must be said. So yes. Uh but yeah, overall a radical uh reshaping of it. The biggest thing it hit was vehicles, of course, but that mm -hmm. in itself made it possible to have more vehicles on the table and to handle producing more vehicles. Because being bound into having to make a, a hit location chart, a little graphic for it every time was yeah. uh, not great overall, we had found uh, over the course of doing second edition. So uh, it was kind of good to move away from that, even though it, it tragically lost a bit of um, narrative, shall we say? Narrative. Yeah, fun. I, I always just flying off and squashing people. Absolutely, I, I remember playing second edition. You know, we 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 always I, I always felt like you know, we always said we loved it. We I think we had like a real like love hate relationship with the actual playing <laughs> of it because it, it was either really really fun because something cool happened, or it yep. was just sort of like tedious bookkeeping you had to do that slowed down the game. Yes. But like, but the fun moments were so fun that we kind of forgave the rest <laughs> of it, right? Like, yes, uh, yes, it, it, it definitely had its moments overall, and it it could actually tell a very great narrative. Yeah, but at the same time, yeah, there, there was stuff that was tedious bookkeeping, and some of it was far far, much, far too much trouble for what it actually did, and things like that. All I can say is we were learning as we went. Yeah, of course. I mean, it was it was still a hell of a game. You know, every every walkway having fun, I think. Mm. Well, this to my amusement, I said I was looking, I spent my time looking on Facebook early on. Um, there's second edition groups, people still playing second edition yeah. to this day, or returning to it and going like, "Oh yeah, my first game of second edition in 20 years," and all this sort of stuff. So there's a, there's evidently a huge nostalgia value yeah. even <laughs> now. I I, I, I'm periodically tempted to like do a, a set of models from the from the era, but I, I don't know if I actually want to return to the gaming. I think I might just keep my fond memories. Fond memories. 
it could be for the best. Yeah. Yeah, like you say, get get yourself a, a, like a, a few classic models so you can uh, can look at them and go like, oh wow, that's what we used to paint back then, is it? It's kind of funny though. It, you can like you can do that and do like Jez Goodwin models and go, mm-hmm. like, okay, they're about the same as they are now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which because they were awesome back then, and you know, absolutely you have to change awesome too much, or you can look at some um, some other models and go, hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess we've come a long way, haven't we? It, it's true. Well, in some cases, I don't necessarily feel it's necessarily all been been improvements. Not saying that the new models are worse, but like I, I, the, mm. the changes have t- changed. Right? You know, I, I I played Space Orcs in the second edition, and yeah. I love the new Orcs. They're very cool, but they 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 scratch a different itch now, right? Like they were they were yeah. so much weirder and goofier in second edition, and that's what I love about them. <laughs> oh, you can blame me for that. Oh, is that your fault, Andy? It is 100% my fault. <laughs> I'll hold my hand up to it. I changed the orcs to not be goofy. What, why uh, did you ruin the game, Andy? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. This interview's over. My house. It is. Mic drop moment. Yeah. No, I, I, I really like the new orcs. I think the direction they took them was cool, but it's, it's not necessarily what I grew up with. So like, I occasionally, yeah. I have an orc army right now and I, I really like it, but I'm occasionally like, mm, maybe I do want to buy some 1994 well, Mad Boys or whatever, you know? <laughs> I, I, I was under the impression that the, the current round of Orcs is heading more back in that direction. Because um, for a long time, yeah, third edition Orcs were Brian Nelson Orcs, starting in Necromunda, where it kind of redefined a lot of their physiology. Yeah. Um, give them a, a quite distinct look, whereas before they, they were like little guys in rubbery masks, which right. is one of the things I didn't like about them very much. Sure. Um, but I, I I see some of the more, um, shall we say, zany elements of the orcs have been coming back to the fore in the most recent Games Workshop thing. So it's yeah, not forever. here and there. I, I, I'm sure they won't swing all the way back, nor do I want it to necessarily, right? But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's it's fun to see those those old touches come in here and there. Sure. And I, I think that's sure. happened in a lot of places, the line, too. But, uh yeah, so I think one more piece of workshop history I like to talk about because I feel like I, I, nobody will forgive me if I don't at least mention Battlefleet Gothic. Ah, yes. Yeah. My magnificent octopus. Is that... <laughs> yes, sorry, magnum opus. Yeah. Um, um, yes, yes. Uh, having done two games a year for a number of years, uh, finally got, got a chance to do one of mine, which I'd actually started writing a, a few years beforehand. And... Its genesis actually goes all the way back to when I started out uh, back in 1990 at Games Workshop. I shared a Jervis, shared an office with Jervis, and we were next door to Richard Halliwell, who'd done Space Hulk, and he was working on Battlefleet Gothic at the time. And again, much like Confrontation, you know, logos had done, artwork had been drawn, there was even some plastic spaceships for it. But the game itself, all respect to Richard, God rest his soul, was pants hmm. and he he was working on this sort of like gridded system um with like newtonian movements so oh, very once you're going in in a direction you're going in a direction you can turn you have to thrust to come back and so forth so people just flew off the board all the time sure. not satisfying really <laughs> yeah uh, and never really got resolved so that went in the bottom drawer as well alongside the confrontation stuff um Later on, some of it got pulled back out of the drawer, and Jervis did Space Fleet. Jervis and Andy Jones did Space Fleet uh, and a few extra things for that as well, which was the uh, Molly Dice in the Box Lid game. Mm. 
they, they did a, a little series of games basically using plastic components uh, to make some slightly cheaper games with the idea of like get them into like supermarket stores and things like that. Uh, so Crunch was another one, the bowly one, and they did Space Fleet. I remember Crunch, yeah. And Space Fleet was actually sort of kind of cool because it benefited from having those bits of artwork that had done, been done and so on. Um, did some stuff in White Dwarf for it. But again, it wasn't really, I didn't, it was still on a grid in effect and it was still not the kind of game that I wanted to play uh, using spaceships. And I loved spaceship games. Absolutely love them. Even before I got into Adeptus Titanic, I've been into a spaceship game called Encounter One, uh, and then Starfleet Battles. After that, so but that had all lain quiescent for a number of years while I've been working in Games Workshop. But I, I really wanted to do a Warhammer Forty Thousand spaceship game, so I started designing Battlefleet Gothic in my own time. Uh, it started off originally, originally as a card game. But I very quickly came to the realization that, you know, you wanted to have miniatures and you wanted to be able to push the miniatures around. That was where the coolness was. Yeah. So I, I ended up basing it off of uh, the work we'd done for Epic 40,000 more than anything else, which was, you know, after Space Marine, after Space Marine Second Edition, after Titan Legions, uh, basically tried to reboot Epic 40,000 with a new system. Didn't work because it was too different to the mm -hmm. earlier systems and put a lot of people off oops <laughs> um but it had a lot of really good mechanics in it it's, it's actually probably on pure rulesiness probably one of the best games i've done so i took a lot of the pure rulesiness bits out of it and ported them across um and said well okay if you were taking those principles how do you build a spaceship game out of it and start writing the spaceship game and again it worked out surprisingly well uh, ran some of it in White Dwarf as some articles sort of saying oh hey I've been looking at a spaceship game got some feedback from people which again in the sort of like mid 90s you can't take quite as for granted can't take for granted like you can now because people have to like, like write physical letters to me but nonetheless I got some physical letters and that helped uh, and carried on developing it for about a year or more um, and finally managed to just squeeze it onto the schedule before we started going dropping down to doing one game a year uh, so it was a glorious moment a lot of things came together very well uh, Jez had been thinking about how to do spaceships for years and years and years by that point and I've been talking to him for years and years and years and early for that at that point so we had kind of like a plan and it all just locked together and between the art and the game itself and the miniatures that were done for it it's just gorgeous yeah it was a lovely little game again still being played it's had a bit of a renaissance in recent years because of 3d printing i was going to mention that yeah has, has, has it been weird seeing the game sort of come back in like from the dead in that way um weird is not the, the word i'd use for it sort of like gratifying that's the sure word I'd use yeah for it. fair enough yeah <laughs> That people sort of like want to resurrect a game from more than 20 years ago, basically, they'll go like, yes, this is spaceships as I like it, um, was very gratifying. Oh, and, bad. you know, I think we, we hit the right tone, or Jez hit the right tone with the design of the ships and things like that, because they, they've stayed you know, eternal, shiny and chrome in terms of like, well, this is what they look like. Yeah, I mean, they, they haven't changed in the official uh, stuff really either, have they? <laughs> no, no, and, you know, and Battlefleet Gothic itself has had a couple of video games yeah. uh, designed, designed off it. So the, these are all signs you kind of hit things right 
you know, if people go like, oh, yes, the image is right, you know, the feel of it right, and I like the game itself as well, you actually manage to coordinate all those different elements and produce a good game. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all we could ever hope to do, really. It's so iconic. Yeah. Uh, but I, I guess that was sort of, with that in the the third edition of 40K and uh, fourth edition even, you were, you were sort of moving on from Games Workshop at that time, weren't you? Yeah, I, I stayed till the end of fourth, well, we'd finished work on fourth edition mm-hmm. uh, when we parted company. Because... Yeah, it was enough. It was enough by that point of uh, doing the th- doing the thing. Yeah, and the prospects for the future at that point were pretty clearly well. There's going to be, you know, a rotating stable of three games: Lord of the Rings, Warhammer Fantasy Battle, and Warhammer Forty Thousand that will get revamped every few years, and all these supplemental books will need to be revamped every few years. And we'd just come off doing third edition codexes like as fast as we possibly could mm-hmm. uh to get out the coverage uh and in with that had managed to do a couple of global campaigns as well uh for third edition and uh, yes it was time <laughs> yeah it was time at that point so yeah uh so fourth edition like i say kind of marks the end of my workshop career but out of any of it yeah probably battlefleet gothic was the highlight for me, at least, yeah, that's that's your that's your favorite. Looking back on the the fourteen years there, yeah, yeah, Necromunda comes a close second. Um, I've really got a soft spot for Gorkamorka, but I love Gorkamorka. <laughs> <laughs> as I've explained to others, the uh, the Gorkamorka experience for me was like eight weeks, yeah, of changing over everything from Necromunda to fit with Gorkamorka. Um, so it it was very intense. And uh, I don't remember it all that fondly because of that, but people really like it, so <laughs> that kind of makes it worth it in a way. Yeah, no, it was, I, I, we had a lot of fun. I mean, a few friends, we, we played the hell out of that, that core box set for probably a, a summer or so. Mm. The best thing about Gorkamorka was always the just the, the assorted wagons that people slapped together. Oh, yeah. Parts. They were fantastic. I always really enjoyed that. Yeah, it was good time. It's, but... Uh, Moving on from, from Games Workshop, you, you, you did quite a bit. In fact, I mean, you, you've made a card game called Flame War, which was yes. given to me because I was the community manager at Privateer Press at the time. <laughs> really? Yeah, one of my coworkers <laughs> gave it to me as a as a, as a gift, uh, a professional yeah. gift, I should say. Ideal, ideal, absolutely ideal for anybody who's had to moderate a community. Yeah, yeah that, that, was, that was my um, yeah, game written on the back of a serviette sort of thing. Um, on the principle of oh, the internet. I see how this works now, or at least I think I do. Yeah, it, it, it was prescient, perhaps. Like, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that that uh, that was with Luke Peterschmidt. I did that fun to eleven games because yeah, I started doing freelancing after workshop, and that was actually much later. That's right. Yeah. Cause I did like a, a year or so of freelancing stuff. I wrote a Necromunda novel in that time. I wrote, uh, Starship Troopers, the miniatures game Yeah. for Mongoose publishing. Yeah. Yeah. Basically it's a license from the movie. Um, and that was a lot of fun cause it was the first time for over a decade that I'd got to write a, a rule system from the ground up. So I went nuts with that. Uh, that actually has its own following as well. To the miniatures were quite cool for that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, Bob Naismith did the the mobile infantry for it and the bugs, the arachnids uh, in plastic, which it suited them because yeah. they were so spindly, of course. 
But yeah, very striking game visually. Uh, and a, a lot of fun conceptually. It's one of these, you get this with movie games, is because there's a movie, everyone can get their head around it very, very easily. You know, it's an easy sell yeah. in some ways. So that was a lot of fun. Doing the novel was fun as well, but hard work. Um, after that, I went on to uh, work at Blizzard for four years. 2004 to uh, 2005 to 2009, uh, where I worked on StarCraft II. I was sort of creative lead for that uh, and lead writer for that. Um, and a little bit of World of Warcraft and a lot of playing World of Warcraft. Sure. Playing World of Warcraft. <laughs> <laughs> that was basically my main form of entertainment for yeah. three years. Um. After which I went back to freelancing again mm -hmm. because actually that's the most fun I found. Uh, and you know, hats off to the hardworking people at Blizzard; they work very hard. But I'm not a fan of yeah, twelve-hour days and all no, that sort of stuff. For sure. Yeah, I think that, that kind of brought you back into um, so Bolt Action, maybe Blood Red Skies eventually, which is uh, your baby, as I know it, as I understand. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, I was living in the US when I was worked at Blizzard, and I actually moved up to Seattle for a couple of years uh, and started doing uh, freelancing from there. But we moved back to the UK in 2010, no, 2011. And back to Nottingham, of course, the land of my forefathers, and heart of, you know, the English, great English lead belt, which yeah. gave rise to Games Workshop in the first place. Yeah, of course. And of course, a lot of the people I know are still here, uh, doing various things of their own. And quite a few guys who'd been working at Games Workshop, including like Rick and Paul Sawyer, who I'd worked with for you know more than a decade yeah. um, uh, on White Dwarf, had started at Warlord Games, uh, and they were doing historical stuff, which you know I've always that was my very very beginning was, was as a historical player because that's mainly what you got to play back in the 70s uh, and in the 80s, and I would catch an interest in it. One of the first commissions I got when I, I moved back was actually to write a, a book for Bolt Action to do Armies of the Soviet Union, because they knew that I had something of a, a communist bent to me uh -huh. <laughs> in general. Uh, I'd always been interested in the Red Army, like really, really. Yeah. And, you know, had, had used it as a reference point many times sure. over the years, and the Eastern Front in general. Yeah, there's a good... Did you know? Did you know the the Battle for Armageddon game that Jervis did was actually the Eastern Front? I did not know that, but it makes sense now that you said it. Mm. Yes, all the major cities. Basically, if you reverse the map, it, it all makes sense. Huh. That's so, super cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. Commissar Yarek is in fact Marshal Zukov. Sure. And so on. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, it had always been a big reference point, so it was like, oh, cool. And uh, Working on something historical was, was interesting. That was a lot of fun. And while I'd been in Seattle, uh, one of my, uh, my great friends, great games designer called Ryan Miller, uh, we used to hang out on occasion and go and get breakfast down at Beth's and all this sort of stuff. And one day he'd asked me, sort of, like, you know, if you could design a game, just any game you wanted to, what would it be? Which took me somewhat by surprise because at that point you know I've been freelancing for a number of years so I designed the games that people paid me to design overall and the idea that I could design something for myself had never even crossed my mind yeah um but I'd had an idea because I'd, I'd got into um, World War II aircraft 
really strongly. I was like, I was quite interested in World War Two and historical stuff in general. I got into the air war side of it, and I'd had an idea, kind of like that, span out from an idea I'd had for Battlefleet Gothic, ironically enough, about doing this sort of like three layered three um, D system, which doesn't really matter in space too much if you've got no gravity. Who cares? Sure. But when you start using it for aircraft, it actually starts to make a lot of sense. And it kind of revolves around this idea that um, this had come from um, reading like air tactics manuals and things like that and uh, autobiographies by pilots. They'll often talk about having the advantage. Um, what they mean is it's usually a height advantage, right. but it can be a speed advantage or it, it might be that they just haven't seen you coming. Mm-hmm. You know, They're literally not aware that you're there. And they'll talk about how the fact when you have the advantage, you need to press the advantage, uh, you know, and, and get them on their back foot, as it were. And when an opponent is disadvantaged, then you know you've got a good chance of taking them down. I was yeah. Like, hmm. So I took that, uh, had this sort of like three-layer system of being advantaged, neutral, disadvantaged, and that's the heart of Blood Red Skies. And I kind of I wrote up a, a basic system around that, and me and Ryan played some games of it, and it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it worked really, really well. And he made a few suggestions that helped it along and sort of was like, ah, oh. and I, I kind of like write it, wrote it up as a game because that's fairly instinctual for me at this point. Sure. And again, put it in my metaphorical bottom drawer and more or less forgot about it for a year or two. Um, and when I got back in touch with Warlord, I sort of like, I'd, I'd got it far enough along that I'd considered like trying to put it on Kickstarter or something like that. But I thought, actually... At the end of the day, I don't want to run Kickstarters. I don't want to be involved in things like that. I'm just a games designer. I don't know about selling things. Mm-hmm. But Warlord does. They actually have salesmen and right. things like that. <laughs> so And women as well. So why not try and cut a deal with them? And I showed it to them. I you know, demoed it for Paul. And he was really interested in it. He was like, oh, this is a really good game. But at the time, they were trying to do Gates of Antares. So you know, their, their books were full for at least a, a few years. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was like, all right, fair enough, and sat on it for a bit longer, worked on it a bit more sort of thing. But eventually it came around that they did have time to do it. And uh, I worked on it with a guy called Rickard, who did a really good job of putting together the initial starter set when we did a Battle of Britain, you know, Messerschmitts versus Spitfires. Sure. Uh, starter set for it, models in a box, once again, everything you need to play. Uh, and that's gone really, really well, really, really well over the last, that came out about four years ago now. Um, we've done various extra squadron boxes and stuff like that. But the biggest thing that's been holding it back over the years is initially Warlord did, uh, they shelled out to get some plastics done. And mm-hmm. there's some really lovely plastics of like Fock Wolf 109s and Hurricanes for the range and Mosquitoes and Meshmet 110s. But then the rest of the range uh, is not so good, the older range, because it was in metal, which isn't ideal for doing aircraft with. Um, but over the last few years, they, they've managed to suss out a way of like spin casting resin in effect. So we can have resin aircraft now. And finally, after many delays and much shed blood and tears, uh, we managed to get the Battle of Midway game out in November. Oh, wow. Which is uh, all spangly. Is that a starter spangly set? And new. Yes, that's a starter set. It has zeros and wildcats in the box, uh, six of each. Because Blood Red Skies is, is designed primarily to be a mass combat system. Because my, the other uh, dissatisfaction I had with the various air warfare games that were around that I knew about is they tended to revolve around pre-plotting movement, which I always hate. Mm-hmm. 
um, and handling, you know, maybe two, or if you knew the game really well, maybe three aircraft. Yeah. But if you didn't know the game very well, probably just one. And that kind of stuff. And when I read about, um, you know, aerial combat in World War II, it wasn't like that. It wasn't, you know, Red Baron chasing one-on-one around. It was like, and then the 30 Messerschmitts dived on us for a war. Right. Um, so I, I wanted to at least sort of like get back to that, do like an air battle game. So six on six is an average size game for Blood Red Skies. It's a smallish game. Once you know the game, you can handle 12 on 12 and stuff yeah. like what that. What size table is it played on or board? Um, six against six, you can handle it on three foot by three foot easily. Cool. So it's a relatively small footprint for a game. Yes. That's great. Yes, indeed. And, uh... Um, so, yes, uh, and people seem to really like it. It's enough so that it's effectively got a second edition. We've done extra rules for, like, you know, doing ground attacks and sinking ships and stuff like that. Um, and aces. Lots aces. of named aces. Oh, yeah. Well. <laughs> yes, uh, it, it it's driven off a card system, so there are like ace skill cards, and you can you can have aces, uh, but you can also have named aces. And named aces are special because they get two sp- two skill cards rather oh, that's than just cool. one. Yeah, uh, and again, it's, it's just a marvelous opportunity to sort of like you know write about because each has its own little card with a, a little bit of biography on the back and so mm-hmm. on, and like I say, individualized skills for them, and. It's meant that I've read some fascinating stories I'm about sure. Aces over the last few years. I really have. Yeah, that's very good. Is, is it is it a hobby game? You paint your miniatures? Uh, yes, it is. Cool. Yes, it is. The uh, the aircraft are one two hundred scale. They're supplied unpainted, and there's actually a really nice uh, Facebook group called the Ready Room, which I recommend anybody who's got an interest in Blood Risk guys to stick their nose in and have a look at. Oh, great! I'll, I'll the throw nicest a link into thing that. about it. It, the nicest thing about it is people put up these beautifully painted aircraft, you know, the, the sort that make you ashamed yeah. <laughs> of the ones that you've painted. Uh-huh. But actually, I, one of the nice things I've found is, like, I take photos of mine, and mine look beautifully painted too, even though I know they're not. So I, I think they just photograph well, is yeah. what it comes down to. But yeah, and Warlord do um, decals oh, cool. for, uh, for the periods and for specific aces and stuff like that, and different squadrons and so on. And what we're just starting to look at now, uh, having got a lot of the pieces in place, is trying to get into that sort of like that Necromundus or Blood Bowl style campaign systems. So oh, you sure. run a, a squadron you, over multiple engagements. You develop your like pilots. That. Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Very cool. So, you know, little Johnny Deadmeat can yeah. survive <laughs> his first few games and turn into Johnny Ace instead and things like that. Awesome. That sounds great. I, I, unfortunately, you probably just sold me another game, which I don't have the capacity for, but I'll probably buy anyway. So, well, <laughs> again, like Necromunda, the buy-in is very small. Yeah. All you got to do is paint six. Paint, well, you don't even need to paint them. All you need to do is buy the box, and uh, you're away. Yeah, I'm gonna check it out. That that uh, that midway box. That sounds really fun, and I'll definitely put a link into that for anybody listening, so they can uh, they can go pick it up or just check it out themselves. Uh, a, a great pivotal aerial battle in history just as the Battle of Britain was, but actually even more focused than the Battle of Britain. One of the good things about doing the Battle of Midway is you can, you know, you can literally break it down hour by hour with oh, yeah. an aerial attack going in yeah. and stuff like that, and it all happens over the course of a day. So it, it actually makes a really great focused game. No, and, a... you know, the Midway uh, box game has got uh, 
specific scenarios in the books, obviously for all of the, the different events over the course of the day. But yeah, that sounds really cool. So I, I want to, I want to, I don't want to waste too much of your time tomorrow today, but I, I have one last question for you as a game designer. What, what is it you love? What is it that makes a game fun for you? We, we touched on it earlier on. It, it, it's that narrative, that shared narrative. Yeah. Where you and your opponent just end up laughing in horror or disbelief or amazement or appreciation of the fact that something that shouldn't have happened did happen or something that should have happened did happen for that matter. Do you know what I'm saying? Because you're both playing a game, you're both investing a certain amount of your your imagination, your emotion into it. Mm -hmm. And the combination of those things, along with some randomness and events, can just, I don't know, create pure magic at times. It really can. It's, it's like a cinematic moment, right? Yes, yes. That's that's probably a much better term for it than the one I'm trying to use. <laughs> it's those cinematic moments, yes. Where the guy walks away from the fiery explosion, or indeed gets caught in the fiery explosion. You know, it's yeah. those moments of gold. It, it's uh, the culmination of your story. Yeah, yeah, it really is. Um, and I, for me, that's what makes it all worthwhile. It's it's the those way those stories unfold over the course of a game. You know, you come in, you have a plan, you think you know what you're doing, and then everything goes to crap. Um, <laughs> no, that's just war gaming. Yes, yeah. absolutely. That is absolutely. And you know, I, I still freelance now, and I'm still writing rule sets now. Um, several at the moment because yeah. people want lots of rule sets. What they come to me and ask me for um, most at the moment is those kind of second edition experiences. They they say, you know, a bit like second edition where X, Y, Z could happen. Sure. That That's uh, increasingly what I get asked for. So having spent years honing my art, crafting it down to the smoothness of an egg in terms of uh, how the rule mechanics work, which is how Blood Red Skies work, it's an incredibly smooth system very clever probably the cleverest cleverest game i've ever invented people are like ah we want turrets flying off and people get squashed <laughs> what if it was really complicated instead right yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. absolutely <laughs> awesome well andy thank you so much for talking to me i hope you have a great holiday season um it's been a pleasure and uh, i've been playing your games for almost 30 years now and i expect to play them for another 30 uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you as well thank you for having me on today Brush Builders Union is a community of like-minded miniatures gamers dedicated to playing their games fully painted and supporting one another in their craft. Brush Builders Union is here to help you stay on track with tools and a community of fellow painters to encourage you in your journey. Take the Union Pledge and learn more at brushbuildersunion.com. Mm-hmm.